Children, you may be dismissed at this time. Children are dismissed at this time. If you are over the age of seven, you should take out a Bible and you should have it open in front of you. Open it to John chapter 11. This morning we're going to be in verses 17 through 27. They can be found on page 897 in the Pew Bible. John 11, verses 17 through 27. Every writer wants that perfect opening line for their book. We've done a famous opening lines quiz before. How about this one? This one, I haven't been able to get this one out of my head as I've been working on this text. It's easy. It starts off like this. Marley was dead to begin with. What book? What? Christmas Carol. Come on. Dickens. It's an easy one. If you haven't read it yet, culturize yourself. I don't know if that's a word. Uh, You should also familiarize yourself with the Muppets version. It's wonderful. (laughs) Marley was dead to begin with. Lazarus was dead to begin with. That's where we are in John chapter 11. Death is again our context. Death is our conflict. Death is so present and real and overpowering that it's almost as if death is a character itself in this story and our story. It could be the character, the main player, plot and purpose, unless, well, unless life, of course. But Lazarus was dead. So, more death today. Sorry about that. But it is a chapter about death. But, good news, the good news is that being a chapter that is ultimately about Christ, as are all the chapters of Scripture, this chapter that is about death is ultimately then about the Christ who is life. By the way, but the way to the life is through the death. That's how it was for Christ. That's how it will be for all who follow Him. That's how it will be for us as we work through our text. We must deal with death. John Bunyan was laying on his deathbed in the year 1688. He said this on his deathbed, Weep not for me, but weep for yourselves. I go to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will no doubt, through the work of His blessed Son, receive me, though a sinner. There I hope we ere long shall meet to sing the new song and remain everlastingly happy world without end. What a remarkable response to death. Sounds a lot like last week. Sounds like verse 11. We know that Lazarus was dead, but Jesus says that Lazarus has fallen asleep. And so we looked long at how Scripture speaks of death in Christ. Paul desired it. Paul called it gain. Paul said that we would rather be away from the body. Would we? Revelation 14, 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Desired death, blessed dead. Bunyan got that. Likewise, Spurgeon could provocatively say, the only people for whom he has felt any envy have been the dying members of this very church. How could he say such a thing? How could dying Bunyan say, weep not for me, but for yourselves? And we are talking about death here. The king of terrors, the great unknown, inevitably coming for us all, ending all, hanging over all. I read a book this week, The Violet Hour was the name. It's about the deaths 
of various famous writers. Sounds kind of morbid and, and strange. Eh, it is interesting. Uh, none of these writers were Christians. Uh, it was at times a sobering, hard read. And the author, in the introduction, wrestles with why she's obsessed with death and why she's writing a whole book about these people's deaths. And she says this. She says, I think if I can capture death on the page, I'll, I'll repair or fix or heal something. I'll feel better. It comes down to that. So she's trying to deal with death by familiarizing herself with it. She's trying to get used to it. But she continues, secretly, of course, reading through these deaths, what one wants to learn is how to avoid dying altogether. Which turns out to be a hopeless endeavor as all of her subjects die, as all of us die. And so she eventually writes, I don't believe that you can learn how to die or gain wisdom or prepare for it. 300 pages. That was the conclusion. Not very encouraging. Especially in light of some of the haunting and horrifying deaths that she records and the terror that tormented those approaching their death. I'll spare you the details. But I believe that you can learn how to die to gain wisdom and that you must prepare. I believe that you can avoid dying altogether because that's exactly what Christ himself tells us in our text today. I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in me shall never die. See, that's the difference between Paul and Bunyan and Spurgeon and all the writers in that book. Christ is the difference. Christ is life. I've said before, obviously, simplistically, but I think it's worth saying, the only solution to death is life. We're obsessed with health and safety and lengthening life, but ultimately, all we're really doing is delaying death. Only life can solve the problem of death. And so do you see the problem? You are alive. You desperately want to stay alive. But that desire will inevitably be frustrated. What can be done? How can life be found when death comes for us all? John chapter 11. That's what this is about. Jesus. That's what this is about. And this text is its beautifully Simple. Ryle says there's such a grand simplicity about this passage that it's almost spoiled by any human exposition. Almost, hopefully. I'm going to try not to spoil it. But Ryle is right. This text is beautifully simple. I stared at it for a long time, trying to come up with something novel, some brilliant approach to it. We don't need that. We need Christ. We need what he says so clearly in this text. We need life. He has just said in John 10, verse 11, that he has come that we may have abundant life. I don't know about you, but I really do want that. I do. I'm tired of being grumpy and moody and impatient and restless and conflicted and offended and frustrated and disappointed. So I want both a solution to my death then, and I want to experience the fruits of that solution, abundant eternal life, now. How? Let's consider our text. Let's consider Christ our life. Simple outline as we progress through this life and death story. Jesus is the main idea. He is where we must begin and focus. So we must begin with this fifth of seven I am statements. Uh, statements of identity and revelation. Point number one, quite simply, I am. That's what Christ says. What is the only response to I am? Point number two, we're going to see Martha say, I believe what is the result of this belief in the Christ who is I am? Point number three, I live. Nice and simple. 
Christ is the only solution to your life and death problem. You only get Christ through faith, but when you get him, you live. Christ, faith, life. That's all we're doing. John chapter 11. Let's look at the text. Verses 17 through 27, I will read them for you. Make sure my words are coming from these words. Uh, This is the living and active word of the Lord. Pay attention. This is what God himself wants to say to you today. John 11, 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming in to the world. If you would, bow with me. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, show us Christ. Father, I pray that we would actually feel the reality of our mortality. I pray that we would be very aware uh, that we will die and that we will stand before you, the God of all glory, the God of perfect holiness and perfect justice. I pray that we would feel how short we fall of that perfection and that apart from you that we are only dead in our trespasses and sins. Father, show us that life is found in Christ. Convince us that life is found in Christ. Compel us to begin to live our lives as if our life is found only in Christ. Father, I cannot do this We cannot do this for ourselves. Only you can do this by your spirit through your word. So, Father, please help us in this time. I pray that this wouldn't be a waste of time. I pray that this wouldn't be uh, my own meager efforts. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I ask and pray that you would now work through your word. Bring life through this word that reveals to us uh, the Christ that is life. Uh, We ask and we pray this all in his name. Amen. Point number one, I am. Point number one is simply the identity of Christ. We are back to the claims of Christ. Let's first set the context for those claims. If you look in verse 17, we see that we have a scene change. The characters stay the same. One of them is is now dead. Uh, That's the point of verse 17. Look at it. Remember, Jesus was away. Jesus stays away. Lazarus is sick. Jesus stays. Lazarus dies. Now Jesus comes. But the verse highlights the fact that Lazarus has already been dead four days. Why that detail? 
Many commentators mention a Jewish superstition at the time that the, the soul lingers around or hovers over the body for three days, and so Jesus waited four days to make sure that that wasn't the case or they weren't thinking that was the case. It seems that that tradition developed actually much later after this. I don't think that's why the four days are mentioned. In verse 39, Martha will argue that since it's been four days, there will be an odor. The body will have already begun to deteriorate and decay. We now know the first line of a Christmas carol, Marley was dead to begin with. The second line is, there is no doubt whatever about that. Dickens goes on, old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Dickens then goes on to ponder why the saying is dead as a doornail and proposes that maybe it should be dead as a coffin nail, right? Because maybe that's the deadest piece of, of metal or something, right? Again, Dickens is, Dickens is wonderful. You should read Dickens. Marley was dead as a doornail. That's the point of the four days. Lazarus was dead. There is no doubt, whatever, about that. And whereas the deadness of Marley is being emphasized to prepare us for the meeting of his ghost, still very much dead, in chains, tortured for eternity, the deadness of Lazarus is being emphasized to prepare us for the meeting of his life. Capital L, life, Jesus Christ. And so he comes. I am arrives. Verse 19 mentions that many of the Jews have come to Martha and Mary to comfort and console them. This could imply that the family was of, of some means. Uh, maybe they were a family of significance. We cannot know uh, for sure. Uh, but the mourning process at the time was elaborate and it was extensive and it went on for a long time. So the Jews rightly recognized the tragedy that is death, the unnaturalness of death. And this in and of itself is a strong argument against the naturalistic worldview that increasingly pervades our culture and our churches. Death should be the most natural thing in the world to us. All are born, all die. Nature is just shot through with death. It's everywhere. It's natural, right? And yet, why do we so rage against it? Why does it so unsettle us and unnerve us? It makes little sense. But if scripture is true, and Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity into our hearts, if we are made in the very image of God, like God, the God of life, thus made alive, made for life, we all then intrinsically and inherently long for life. That makes sense of the awareness that we all have of the horror and unnaturalness of death. And so we rightly mourn death. Don't let anything that I said about death as sleep last week make you miss the unnaturalness of death. It's still the enemy. All that is true only in Christ because of what we're about to hear. We'll see next time Christ himself respond to the reality of death as unwelcome, unnatural enemy and intrusion in this, uh, into his good world as he comes to the tomb and weeps. But for now, the people are mourning and Christ is coming. Look at verse 20. I don't want to read too much into verse 20. I think there's a lot of psychologizing or psychoanalyzing that goes on in regards to Martha and Mary in this text. Let's not read too much into what they do and don't do. 
Uh, we simply don't know why Martha goes and Mary doesn't. Right? Maybe Mary didn't even hear that Christ has come. Again, we, just, we don't know why she stays and sits and Martha goes. But Martha hears, Martha knows, Martha goes, and so she went to him and she met him. Great, simple application point right there from the outset. Martha's first move is the right move. We've seen her already send to Jesus. Now she goes to Jesus. She meets Jesus. She knows right where to turn. She knows where to look in the face of death. Our first move is so often to turn away and to look away and to doubt and to fear. Uh, She goes right to the source and right to Christ. So go to Jesus with your fears and your disappointments and your needs. Look at her words to Christ in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And we'll consider her words more in a moment. But I want to get to Christ's words. This is the words, John 1, 1, words. Verse 23, Jesus says to her, the person that she loves most in the world, besides Mary probably, Mary and Lazarus, the person that she most loves in the world is dead. Look at what Jesus says in verse 23. Your brother will rise again. What a word. What a promise in the face of death. Remember, life is the only solution to death. Lazarus was dead. Jesus says he will live again. But we see that Martha's not quite tracking yet. Again, how could she be? Look at verse 24. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. We'll come back to that. There was great debate at the time. There was a great divide between the two uh, key groups of authorities at the time. The Sadducees denied that there was any resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees believed that there was a future resurrection of the dead. We can see this in Acts uh, 23. This is mentioned there for us. Martha demonstrates here that she sides with the Pharisees. The Pharisees get a bad rap often and often deservedly, but they were the conservative ones. They were the ones seeking to be biblical. They were closer to the truth. But look at verse 25. Look at what Christ does with this. Look at what Christ claims. He enters into that argument and he just blows the whole thing up. We're going to talk in a moment about how perfectly he comforts Martha. But notice how that comfort includes lovingly correcting Martha. Notice how that comfort includes teaching Martha. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. She says, I believe in the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection. And that's our point. I am. This is, this is one of the high marks of the whole book. It's one of those texts you get to as a preacher and you just kind of want to quit because you can't do it justice. This is one of the, the clearest, most comforting revelations of the person of Christ. Remember, John structures his book around seven signs. Lazarus is the seventh and climactic sign building up to the sign, which is going to be the resurrection of Christ himself. So we're getting around that. We're getting to that. But John also structures his book around these seven I am sayings that reveal to us a little bit more about who this Jesus really is. This is statement five of seven. And Jesus just insists on doing this. Jesus will not allow you to like him. 
Jesus will not allow you to be mildly interested in him. He will not allow you to consider him as wise teacher, as prophet, or healer, or as nice guy to have around. No, he, he takes one of the most important texts in the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures. He takes Exodus 3.14 and the self-revelation of the Creator of God, of all that exists, where God says to Moses, I am who I am. Say to Israel, say to the people, I am has sent me to you. And Jesus says, I am that. I am He. I am Yahweh. By the way, that was me in the burning bush. Jesus is claiming to be nothing less than God himself. It's as big and as bold of a claim as possible. And so again, it's, it's either true or it's not. He either is that or he isn't that. If he is that, you must deal with him. And you should deal with him this day. If he is not that then he is worse than worthless. And we are wasting our time. Who do you say that Jesus is? He says that he is I am. And he's relentlessly insistent about this. We've seen the one big claim. Remember that you have the claim. And you know, the predicate comes after. And it qualifies. It explains. We've seen that he makes this claim once. I am with nothing afterwards. Remember the no, nothing following it. Uh, 858. Remember, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, period. That's it. I, I am Yahweh. That's all. Then there's these other seven claims with a predicate, something that comes after, attached, something that explains more about who he is. I want you to listen to all of them. I want you to note what they are all about. You know, I know I'm moving quickly here. You're not going to have time. I'm just, there's seven of them, so I've just got to fly through them. I just want to make the big point. Here's the seven I am statements. 635. I am the bread of life. Tipping my hand already. 812. I am the light of the world. 107. I am the door. 1011. I am the good shepherd. Our text. 1125. I am the resurrection and the life. 146. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 15.1, I am the vine. They're not just like random, arbitrary, disconnected things. You see the connection. All of those are about life. Bread is life. Light is life. The door is the door to life. The good shepherd lays down his life. For our life. He is resurrection and life. The way, the truth, the life. The vine is life. Every one of those is about life. This is the thing that Christ is communicating. This is the thing that Christ has come to bring. I am life. The fundamental claim of our faith is that Christ is God. And since God is life, the fundamental claim of our faith is that Christ is life. This is the very center and sum of Christianity. I am. And so then now the the obvious next question is, well, who are you? How do you respond to this wild claim of Christ? For that is what determines who you are, according to Christ. According to Christ, that is what determines your life or your death, how you respond to him and his claim 
Point number two. There are only two responses to such a claim. There is no middle ground. There's two responses. The first response is just rejection. Jesus has just said to the Jews in 1026, you do not believe. That's, that's response one. And to be clear, not choosing one way or another, or just apathy, or disinterest, or willful ignorance is the same as outright rejection. Listen, you cannot be confronted by such a claim, by such a person, with the claim to be the God of life, come to graciously and freely give you life and respond to that claim, respond to Him, the God of all beauty and glory and grace with, eh, Netflix. Right? That's what I'm going to I'm going to go do that. No, that, that's rejection. That's, that's outright rejection. Apathy, uh, indifference, boredom with Him. That's rejection. That's response one. Response two. Look at verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe. Believe. It's the only other response. But back up first. Let's go on. Let's, 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 let's get there. Martha isn't quite fully there at the beginning of our story. So look back at verse 21. Some people read Martha's opening words here to Jesus as implicit rebuke. Where were you? Ah, I'm not so sure about that. I think it's likely just the legitimate, honest cry of grief and sadness. I don't think there's anything wrong with her bringing that to the Lord. We should bring that to the Lord. We see the psalmist, David, over and over bringing such things to the Lord. Why? What's going on here? I think that's all that Martha's doing. But don't miss that there is some degree of unbelief, or at least imperfect belief, revealed there in her assumptions. First, notice that she says, if you had been here. But why would Jesus have had to have been there? End of John 4. We've already seen this. This is the second sign. This is the seventh sign. In the second sign, a man comes to Jesus from far away and says, Jesus, please come and please heal my son who is at the point of death. Jesus says, go. Your son will live. Jesus is the second sign. He heals while he is away. Why could he not have done the exact same thing for Lazarus? He could have. Of course he could have. Jesus is not constrained by space, which also demonstrates another assumption of Martha's, that had Jesus been there, he would have healed Lazarus. How often do we implicitly imply to God, hey, if you cared about me, you would have done this thing. But we know that he could have healed Lazarus from a distance, and we know that he did not, so why assume that he would have if he was there? Again, now, I don't, want, I'm not, I don't want to be critical here. That's not my point. My point is simply that there are some things that she doesn't quite get yet. But she gets that her only hope is Christ. She gets that he loves Lazarus. She gets that love seeks the good of the loved. And in verse 22, I don't, I don't know what verse 22 means. I don't quite know how to read it. She seems to even imply that she has some sort of glimmer of hope. I mean, when he, when he tells her to open the tomb, she's like, no, he's already dead. So it seems there she doesn't understand. But here, what is this? But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. you know, whatever that means exactly, that's a profound statement. I don't think she yet has the entirety of the identity of Christ sorted out. But if you think about it, God gives to no one whatever they ask from him. I've asked God for some really stupid things and some really sinful things. God gives to no one whatever they ask from him. Except for the Son of God, of course. 
So again, it seems that Martha's close. There's, there's some sort of faith, little or imperfect, as it may be. Now, I do want to pause for a moment, and I want to put a pin in Martha for a second. We're talking about faith, I believe. Belief and faith, remember, the same thing in Scripture. Let's look back for a moment. I want you to look back. I want to conclude what I cut out. Because I love you, I cut out stuff from my sermon last week, so I wouldn't keep you here all day. But let's, let's look back at this for a second. Look back at verses 14 through 15. We skipped this. But I think it relates to what we're talking about here. It relates to faith, so it works perfectly. I planned it. Jesus has said that Lazarus has fallen asleep, remember? What a comfort to hear from our Lord, the Word of God, by the final and conclusive and authoritative word from God, Lazarus is asleep. Death in Christ is nothing more than sleep, no more harmful than sleep. It is not death to die. But look at verse 14. Jesus has to explain to the disciples. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Yeah, it's it's a wild verse. Lazarus is dead and and I am glad. Is in effect what Jesus is saying. Now I know there's more to it than that. There's a point, there's a purpose. We've got to believe that there's always purpose in Christ. A purposeless is devastating. What if there's always purpose in everything that happens in your life if you are in Christ? Look at what Jesus says again. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Why? What's our second point? So that you may believe. That's what we're talking about. Jesus is working on the disciples' faith, just like he is with Martha. Jesus waited for a number of reasons, but one of those was for the good of his disciples, for the faith of his disciples. And we've talked about this. Faith is just, it's trust. Faith is trustful belief. It is knowledge of Christ, assent to the truth of Christ, Then it is that trust in or on or into Christ. It's the whole soul entrusting ourselves into his gracious hands. And that's the whole point of this book. Believe. Trust him. Remember back in verse 4, Jesus has said that this illness is for the glory of God. It's the key to the understanding of this whole story. It's fundamental to the story. It's fundamental to your story. The key to understanding life, God's purpose, is God's glory always. And here's the point. Faith glorifies God. Your faith glorifies God. Why? Well, because it trusts Him. Even in the face of illness. Even in the face of death. Even if everything's falling apart. Trusting him in the midst of that proclaims to the world that we value God more than life. That we trust God in the face of death. And when we do that, by his grace, it it glorifies him. It it manifests and makes known how good and great he must be for his people to so cling to him and love him, even when things are so bad. Faith glorifies God. And since faith is that which connects us to him, faith is always for our good. And so Jesus here works to grow and expand the faith of his disciples. In John, believing is living. We'll see this in a second. Because believing connects us to the God of life. And that means that for us, if you are in Christ, faith is your highest good. 
Because it's the means through which you are connected to and in communion with he who is our highest good. Thus, whatever he can do to strengthen that and increase that is good. That's why we talk a lot about providence. That's why trusting that he's sovereign and big and in control, that he's working in all of our troubles, that's why all those things are so important, that he's good in the midst of all that. He's working always to demonstrate his goodness to us and to increase our faith in him. What if we truly believed that God was always doing that? What if you could actually believe that every single circumstance that he brings into your life was for that purpose, was for your good? I could believe that. I'd trust him. As we saw in Sunday school, I would not fear. I'd have greater, stronger faith. Is that faith? Look at 16 for a second. uh, this This is kind of secondary to the point, but is faith what Thomas is demonstrating there in verse 16? I mean, it depends on how you read it. Let us go also, that we may die with him. Maybe. Or, eh, let us go also, that we may die with him. It depends. And commentators are divided. Some say, look how big and bold Thomas's faith is. But we can't read his tone. And in light of what we know about Thomas from chapter 20, I'm inclined to agree with the commentators who think that this may not be faith, but just more sarcastic, resigned, well, let's go die. And I won't argue with you either way. But what if it's the second? What if the second is actually Thomas is just pessimistic? Well, whatever. Might as well go die. What if this statement is not evidence of his faith, but lack of his faith? Or at least evidence of his very little faith? What's that actually then evidence of? Well, it's just further evidence of how good Christ is. Because you may not be all that much different from Thomas. I'm often not. Well, it is what it is. Oh, well, whatever. God is sovereign. Everything's terrible. I think that's Thomas. How amazing is it then that Christ is still working for his good to grow and strengthen his faith? A faith that will eventually, after the compassionate and patient pursuit of Christ, cry out, my Lord and my God. Oh, you of little faith, But, oh, Christ of such love, for he of little faith. Christ still reveals himself to him. Christ still wants to grow our little faith so that we can more and more see him and love him and enjoy him. And that's what we see Christ doing here for Martha as well. It's the same thing. Go back to Martha. Again, she's got some things wrong. But look at how Christ loves her. Look at how Christ comforts her. Again, I know that I'm a miserable comforter. There's, just no, there's no secret about that. Christ is not. God is not. 2 Corinthians 1.3 calls your God the God of all comfort. But our concept of comfort is often so constrained. Look at how Christ comforts. Look at this. Yes, we weep with those who weep. Of course, Christ is going to weep with those who weep next time. But that's not the entirety of comfort. Christ offers comprehensive comfort. And where does it begin? What does he do? Look at what he does. What's the fundamental thing that Christ does? He draws her attention entirely to himself. Lazarus is dead. Martha is mourning. Jesus says, I am. She's mourning. He's teaching. She's mourning and he gives her truth. The truth, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. 
Martha says, he, Lazarus, in verse 24, and Jesus redirects her attention and says, I am, in verse 25. Because Christ knows that he is where we find comfort. And I know that much of my struggle as comforter comes from often just not knowing what to say and then having a real solution to the problem. It's, it's a pride thing. Right? I don't want to prove to people that I'm competent, so I better have some sort of solution. I don't. Oh, no. What am I going to do? Here's the beauty and the comfort that Christ offers. He knows the solution, and he is the solution. And so I have to remember that the kindest comfort that I can offer is to wisely and graciously direct you to Christ, the comforter. The best solution I can offer is Christ as solution. And then we all have to strive to believe that comfort actually is and is only found in him. Remember our crazy Owen quote that we've been using, where he says, this is the universal remedy and cure. This is the only balm or comfort for all our diseases. What is it? This is the sight of Christ. It's the sight of the glory of Christ. And that's what this whole thing is about. This is about belief. This whole book is about belief. John is often called the gospel of belief. And so Jesus is after Martha, and he's after our ultimate eternal comfort. And he knows that it's found only as we find him. And so, even in the midst of our mourning, even in the midst of her mourning and great suffering, he teaches her. He compassionately and graciously reveals himself to her. And he draws his attention to her. Look at me. Look to me. Come to me. And so, where do you tend to look for comfort? And I know that my first move is so always to look for comfort in a change of circumstance. If this is bad and hard and painful, if this changes, I'll be comforted. But yeah, I know that doesn't work. I'm so stubborn, I keep thinking, but I know that it doesn't work. Where do you seek rest and relief? Where do you turn when things are bad and you are sad or even mad? What you and I most need is a clear view of Christ. A constant view Christ. And that happens by faith through the word of Christ. This is why we preach expositionally. This is why we labor to teach through texts. This is why I hope, I hope, again, I'm trying to examine, this is why I hope I love doctrine and theology. I hope it's because I actually believe, John 17, 3, that knowing God is eternal life, and that includes knowing about God, and so that the more that you know about him by his grace, the more that expands and grows your affection for him and your, and your faith um, in him. It's, I think it's hugely significant that Christ teaches about himself to Martha here. Are you comforted? Why not? Uh, Ryle writes on this text, I think it's very profound. He says, many complain of want or lack of sensible comfort in their religion. Right? Do you truly get comfort? from your religion, from your, from your faith, from your belief. He says they don't feel the inward peace which they desire. Do you feel the inward peace that you desire? So Ryle says, well, let them know that vague and indefinite views of Christ are too often the cause of all of our problems. Vague and indefinite views of Christ are as often the, the cause of our problems. He says, and so we must try to see more clearly the great object on which our faith is. Rest. We must grasp more firmly his love and power towards us who believe and the riches he has laid up for us even now. We are many of us sadly like Martha. 
a little general knowledge of Christ as Savior is often all that we possess. But of the fullness that dwells in him, his resurrection, intercession, his unfailing compassion, his glory, we've tasted little or nothing at all. These are the things of which our Lord might well say to many of us, as he did to Martha, do you believe this? And I, say, I, I want you to know him intimately and deeply. I want to know him intimately and deeply because look at who he is. Look at how good he is. Look at what he claims. He claims that he is literally life. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and death? Sometimes it's, it's my health. I got some money in the bank. I got a house that you guys provide me. Thank you. Uh, good food. My wife and my kids. Books. And all these things are good things. These are all good things. But what is my only comfort in life and death? Should be that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's it. Is that your only comfort? Because if that's your comfort, all that stuff goes away. God forbid, again, I don't want all that to go away, but all that goes away. If Christ is my only comfort, then I still have Christ. And I still have comfort. Is Christ your only comfort? Do you believe this? And look at her response again to this comforting revelation of Christ. Verse 27. Ah, oh, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. What a confession. What a confession. Not a hint of hesitation. That's maybe the greatest confession in the book. What conviction. And in the face of such circumstances, her brother's dead. She believes. And look at the content. There's content to what she believes. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. There's great content to your belief. She gets it now. Jesus has graciously revealed himself to her. She sees and she knows, and she believes. And the result? What has to be? That she lives. Point number three, I live. We know that she lives because of the rest of what Christ claims in verses 25 and 26. Look at them again. We haven't got past the first statement. I'm the resurrection and the life. Here's more. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And so then in verse 27, Martha believes. And so then we know, based upon verses 25 and 26, that Martha lives. And this is the whole point of the book. Remember the purpose statement, 2031. John says, this is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's exactly what has just happened. Martha is maybe the clearest illustration of the purpose of this whole book. Believe and live. And that's what I'm desperate to communicate to myself and to communicate to you because John is desperate to communicate to you. Every moment of your life, every thought, every word, every deed is oriented around and toward your seeking life somewhere. Everything that you think and do is based upon where you think life is found. I desperately want to convince you and myself that life, true life, is found only in Christ. Are you seeking it where it is only found? He is the resurrection and the life. And notice that order. Why is it resurrection, then life? Well, by necessity. 
by necessity of our sin and thus our death. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We need resurrection because we are dead. What if we actually conducted our lives and our business and went around out there actually believing that everyone out there that we see that does not know Christ is dead? Is walking around spiritually dead. We were no different before Christ. We need resurrection because we are or were dead. So for there to be life, there has to be the transition from the one to the other. Jesus is claiming to be both the commencement and the continuation of life. Resurrection, re, is a return to life. Jesus is the author of that return, and he's the very life to which we are returned. He returns us, and he returns us to himself. He raises us, and he unites us to himself. And he doesn't say that he teaches the resurrection, or that he leads to the resurrection, or that he gives the resurrection. He says that he is the resurrection. He, a person, is a thing or an event, a resurrection. How? I think this is really neat. Consider this. One four. In him was life. He, as the God of life, is life. And why is the wages of sin death? Because sin is our rejection and thus disconnection from the God of life. Sin, disconnected from life, dead. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And so since life is logically the only solution to death, our only hope was for that life, capital L life, to connect himself to our sin, to take on that sin, and in taking on our sin, taking on our death, and dying our death. But one of the most profound statements in the whole of Scripture is Acts 3.15. You killed the author of life. But that's only because God willed the death of the author of life. Why? For me, for you, for us. Because of his great love for his people. Because of his grace. Because something had to be done about our sin, which is death. And the only thing that could be done is that life himself has to come and die in our place. So that the disconnecting debt is now paid. It's it's gone. And so that we can then once again be connected to him, who is our life, and thus live. And so we literally live entirely based upon him and in We've got to better see that he literally is life. He doesn't just give life. He is life. And this resurrection is not something reserved for after death, nor is eternal life. Both begin now. Both are present in Christ. Both can be laid hold of by faith now. He's talking about two different things in verses 25 and 26. In verse 25, he's talking about Lazarus and physical death. We physically die and yet spiritually live, and then will once again physically live at the resurrection upon his return. But then in verse 26, Jesus is talking about spiritual death, which results in eternal death after our physical death. So you've got to understand the three deaths, physical, spiritual, eternal. In verse 26, Jesus is saying that in him, connected to him by faith, we will never spiritually die and thus never eternally die, and thus live again forever with him. And that's the comfort. 
That's why and how death is transformed for the Christian because of the Christ who is life. In Him, we are literally in life. He's the vine. We are the branches. We are grafted and connected to life, and so we live. Do you believe this? Him, into Him. Do you know what it truly means to live? John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Living is knowing. Life is relationship. We are resurrected to relationship with life itself. And thus Christ, he actually is our life. This is why Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What are you seeking? Colossians 3, verse 1. Look at what Paul says here. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, set your mind on things that are above. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen to verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, Christ, who is your life, when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Listen, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is the result of a true experience of grace through faith. It is the very life of God. It is Christ himself in the soul of man. We've got to move beyond. It's, it's believing some stuff about Jesus so that you can get on with the rest of your life and not have to worry about hell. That's not it. That's not life. You don't have it. But that's what you're doing. It's literally Colossians 1.27. Christ in you. The hope of glory. You see, Christianity is Christ. It is the living Christ giving life to the soul by uniting that dead soul to him. That's what Christianity is. Of course, it's, when we talk, it's the whole revelation of God concerning Christ and the life that's found in him. That's, that's our faith. Uh, but Christianity, it's, it's the life of Christ in the soul, subjectively considered. It's, it's God himself in us. It's the life of Christ. Charles Hodge says that a Christian is one who recognizes Jesus as the Christ. Good. That's the believing. The son of the living God, manifested in the flesh, loving us and dying for our redemption. And he gets an and. Here's the results, the fruits, the evidence of that. And who is so affected by a sense of the love of this incarnate God as to be constrained to make the will of Christ the rule of his life and the glory of Christ the great end for which he lives. That's so much better and more biblical than a Christian is someone who has prayed the sinner's prayer or invited Jesus into their heart or believed some stuff about Jesus. No, Jesus is so much better than that. Are you so affected by a sense of his love for you that you are constrained to make his will the rule of your life and his glory the end and purpose for your whole life? Is Christ your life? Would anyone conclude from your life or mine Priorities, your time, your money, your Sundays, your Mondays through Saturdays, your thoughts and concerns, your loves and your hates, what anyone could conclude from them, that you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that the living Christ lives in you. You know what life does? It lives. It grows. 
It shows. Life is beautiful and observable and pleasurable. That's what Paul says. That's what we read in Philippians 3. This is what Paul wants. He wants to know him and the power of his resurrection. And that Paul counts everything else as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And that's what I want. That kind of desire for and delight in Christ. And that's, that's what I want for you, to truly experience and enjoy the abundant life that is found in Him. To, to less and less look for satisfaction and life in the things of the world and to be more and more convinced that it is truly and only found in Him. And so it starts with seeing Him. It starts with looking and learning and praying that the Spirit would give us the eyes of faith to see the glory of Christ. Do you believe this? And that is the eternally important question. Could there be a greater claim upon your life and upon your time? Jesus claims to be life, abundant, eternal life, and that he is that for us by coming and living and dying and rising again in our place. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the only solution to your imminent, impending death problem, and there is infinite and eternal comfort to be found in him. I am, I believe, I live. Do you believe this? Let's pray, and we'll be done. Father, please help us now. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the privilege and responsibility of preaching your word. Pray that Christ would always be the center of what it is that we do here in this pulpit and, and in this church. Father, I simply ask that you would help us take one little step in the direction of more and more believing that Christ truly is our life. And one little step in, in the direction of, of living our lives uh, for him in light of who he is and, and what he has done for us. Help us to believe that Christ is the resurrection and the life. Father, give life now to anyone in here who does not know him. What if today was the day where you, by your grace, moved someone from death to life? What if today was the day where, for many of us who, by your grace, have already uh, been graciously given that life, um, Father, we're able to more and more rest and rejoice and, and trust you. Father, grow our faith. Give us great love and trust and joy in Jesus. We ask and we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.